Movement Rio Media presents A Few Good Physios with Dr. Eric Munoz and Dr. Leonidas Scantolides. You can't handle the truth. What is physical therapy? More research. More research. True therapeutic effect. Join us each week as we discuss current trends in medicine, rehabilitation, and strength and conditioning. The answers are out there. All content is a collaboration between On Point Sports Care and Integrated PT Squared. A Few Good Physios is not medical advice and is used for educational purposes only. If you are having pain and or health-related complaints, please seek out a licensed healthcare professional. Thank you for downloading. Enjoy. Today we're going to be talking about what is physical therapy. So um, Eric and I have talked about this a lot, and it's very interesting. We're definitely going to the past physical therapy, currently where it is, and then where we think it can go in the future. But if you've never had physical therapy before, it's I and I've, I've said this to friends and colleagues before. I think it's like a um, so imagine like a uh, a child, right? You know. Uh, Someone, a little infant who was just born, one of the first health professionals that they ever get to experience is a physician. So that's a huge imprint on the conscious and the subconscious mind of the infant. They know what that is for the rest of their life. Rarely, unless there's something going on that's wrong, do they go see a physical therapist, occupational therapist, or a speech therapist. So uh, in general, I think the majority do you know, of the population have a very um or they don't know what physical therapy yeah, is. Yeah, it's so. a limited knowledge. I think um overall we think of physical therapy as something we need when there is a problem, when something doesn't work, when something doesn't work, when something when you hurt something post surgically, mm-hmm. um or as Lee mentioned, you know, yeah. But in, in, in reality, in present day, you know, seeing a physical therapist doesn't necessarily have to be when you're in pain. We could be thinking of just optimizing, um, whether it optimizing a sport, optimizing running, optimizing a movement of some sort. Yeah. Um, and luckily with Lee and I, you know, we um, we do some training. So um, we're using, you know, we're training people with the lens of a therapist with that knowledge. And and I think um, I'll just discuss my own experience. My first experience with physical therapy, I kind of forgot about it in the first podcast, but Mm -hmm. uh, during playing football, um, I tore all the major ligaments of my ankle. um, So I was told at the time I didn't Mm -hmm. know what that meant. But um, I got an MRI. I saw an orthopedist in the neighborhood. Uh, He said, you know, we're gonna put you in a cast. That's crazy. Uh, full not, cast. Yeah, full cast uh, on my uh, on my ankle. I felt felt great. <laughs> I got a lot of sympathy, which was cool in my high school. Uh, I got I was on crutches, and I was I was telling Lee a second ago. Um, I actually fell off. Uh, no one taught me how to use the crutches. Uh, so I, PT one hundred one. PT one hundred one. You gotta learn how to teach. <laughs> that crutches. was the first. That was the first major class that we remember with. Yeah. Uh, our, oh, PT man. exam maybe. Oh, intervention. Intervention is one. We, we, how do you use a blood pressure cuff? How do you set someone up on a walker? How do crutches? you spot somebody? How do you kind of guard somebody? Not spot. Now, did you go to physical therapy? Yes. So I went to physical therapy, and what did they it do? consisted of. <laughs> 
whirlpool. I put oh. my foot in some hot water. I don't know. I received. Uh, yeah, I received. <laughs> um, I received uh, some ultrasound. Of course. Uh, then I was iced and put on electrical stimulation. It is heating weird. you up like crazy. Yeah, so heat. <laughs> and then I was on my way. Uh, now, this is after four weeks of being in a cast. Oh, God. Like, so no one helped me with any kind of joint mobility, and uh, no one taught me how to walk again. All of these things, you know, it took me a while. I had to figure out on myself. But anyhow, that was my experience, and it was a very sh- it was short-lived. I don't mm-hmm. think I did it for long. And, um, <laughs> and it was gone. And I was on the football field, you know, uh, six, six weeks later, um, slower, uh, clumsy, and I couldn't really move my left foot. But um, that was my experience with physical therapy. And, and, you know, every day that I'm, a, you know, as a therapist, I strive to try to, number one, make people feel comfortable. Because often mm. when you first day of physical therapy, you don't know what to expect. Right. You don't have clear expectations, and there's a little fear with it. But I'm going to let Lee uh, start off with the uh, the history of physical therapy. The history. Going back. So in school, actually, we learned, um, we watched this, you know, as a side note, we had really, um, what's the word, uh, teachers and therapists who are way ahead of their time. And we learned things when we got out of school that we found out that were not the norm for PT school. I mean, we were taught like neuromobilizations. We were taught uh, pelvic floor physical therapy. We were taught, um, you know, high level uh, spinal physical therapy, things like that. And also various types of uh, um, neuroread or, uh, sorry, spinal cord injury and uh, traumatic brain injury. Anyway, so one of those physical therapists uh, showed us a video on the history of physical therapy. So there was a, a one woman, uh, and, and I'm uh, unfamiliar with her name right now, uh, but she kind of spearheaded the rehab uh, for soldiers coming back from World War II, I believe. And primarily, she studied anatomy. She was almost considered a nurse, um, but she wanted to help soldiers who no longer have certain limbs, either lost their arm or lost their leg, allow or teach them how to get around in their hospital bed, teach them how to walk on crutches, teach them how to just do daily activities. And so she started to train people, other females, because at the time it was just females doing it, um, uh, who were interested in anatomy and physiology and also uh, movement to do it. And so it started off like that, and it kind of just progressed over time. Um, and it, from what I understand, it was a certificate program to start. Um, and again, it was the majority just females. I don't think they, uh, didn't want males to study it, but I think males were not just interested in it. And then it became a bachelor's program. Then, um, even when we were in school, it was still popularly a, uh, master's program. And then it is now, I think the majority a doctor's program. Yeah. They, they, I think passed some legislation, uh, the national board, I think, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, it phased out all of the master's programs around the time we were in school. Right. They had like a phase out program. Oh, the 20, Vision 2020, I think yes. it was. Yes. That was the goal. By 2020, they were going to have every program in the United States to be a DPT program, which stands for a doctor to physical therapy. Yeah, and, and there's many reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the main reasons um, that we could delve into is most states now have what's called direct access. Um, prior to uh, 
um, prior to this legislation, physical therapists worked solely in uh, solely with the supervision or the direction of a medical doctor. So the patient would have to see a doctor prior to physical therapy. But when we started our program, I remember clearly going to an open house, um, them discussing that direct access as of 2010, or don't quote me, around that time, Yeah, uh, actually before 2008 or 10, that New York City or New York State was now a direct access. So patients now come off the street with their injuries, and in the state of New York, at least, we have a one-month or 10 visits, whichever come first, to work on a patient one-on-one. So how the implications of that are that as a licensed physical therapist, we need to rule out red flags. We, re, we need to rule out non-musculoskeletal uh, reasons for pain. And that's why on a national level, there was this push toward doctoral programs that had more... Uh, there's more research. More research, yeah, and more research. Right. Yeah, we right, have right, right, more right. research, and then they had the implementation of differential diagnosis classes, Correct. which were, uh, for us, it was is headed up by an, uh, one of definitely one of our mentors and an incredible physical therapist who continues to teach to this day and um, taught us a great deal. But um, yeah, and just to follow up on the direct access thing in New York, and it's not in every state like this. You have to be a practicing physical therapist for three years before you can be allowed to have direct access. Correct. So before the three years, so if I was a new grad, I would not be able to provide direct access care as a physical therapist. That being said, uh, as I was told by uh, someone, uh, <laughs> you know there aren't many uh, compliance police. There's other things going on in the world now, to, but there's reasons for it. Right. Um, there's reasons for it. But, uh, yeah, there's no compliance police on that. But it, I understand the rationale uh, uh, behind that. Yeah. And and it's definitely, it. you know, it, it sounded fantastic to us. And we were told that in school each, you know, every time we were there in terms of what our responsibilities would have would be in terms of when we got out of school, we got a little reality check because not only um, we had, you know, had to wait to three years, but also – there's a lot of obstacles on insurance that continually go on every year where they're trying to not really allow that to happen anymore. They, they're still requiring uh, a physician's prescription for physical therapy, even if you have three years in your quota direct access, and they're trying to make little changes in their policies and procedures to make that happen. So it's, it is, it, I think it's a fantastic thing. I know there's a big movement on social media that says get PT first, and there's a lot of physical therapists I've read who are against it only because, and I somewhat agree with them, because you don't know what kind of care you're going to get when you get PT first. And as Eric was describing his experience with PT, I had my own experiences like that. Um, but I do think it's important to push forward with this because we're given that education. We're, we're providing uh, the ability to kind of rule out these red flags or direct them to people that we think could help them, other physicians that are a part of the, the medical industry that could actually treat these patients. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's in, by the way, the doctorate program is not, there's usually some confusion on it because people think it's a PhD program. It's, it's not a PhD program, which is fine. I, it's, it's a clinical doctorate. So it's this, it's very similar to if you have a dentist who's a doctorate, a doctor, or you have a chiropractor who's a doctor, it's the same kind. Like you have to have 
clinical um, almost residencies or uh, clinical rotations to complete the doctorate along with providing research, things like that, like Eric and I were involved with um, doing a research uh, study and we had to almost get it published and I think our, our project got selected by our school to get pushed forward that year. But So that is what's required by um, a doctor to physical therapy. Yeah, that's present day. Um, within that, you know, I guess going back to the question of what is physical therapy, mm-hmm. it really, um, it's pretty broad. And so at, with this clinical doctorate, we get a general education into many different realms of physical therapy. Um, we got introduced to pediatric care. We got mm-hmm. introduced to neuro. We got introduced to spinal Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We got into the spinal orthopedics. Uh, We got introduced to acute care. We got acute uh, neural rehab, which is, you know, rehab. So we had this um, just general education. Each of those have our subspecialties. You know, Lee and I chose to go the outpatient orthopedic route, uh, which basically means, you know, we're in a clinic where patients can come see us they're not uh, they may be um prescribed to come to physical therapy but for the most part it is a, a real it's a voluntary choice mm-hmm. um for the most part uh, as opposed to let's say if they're in the hospital they're, yes if they're right, in the right. hospital yeah. and they're like you know if they're uh like we, when we did our rotations and you work in a subacute setting and they're recovering from a stroke right they can go through up to six hours of therapy a day, which includes, let's say, 90 minutes of physical therapy. Right. Then that's also OT, some speech. Mm -hmm. So um, it's pretty intense. And and those experiences, you know, Lee and I were really lucky to uh, have had those experiences in graduate school. And and it taught me a lot about kind of what I want to do, what I don't want to do. But it, um, it carries over, you know, the more you know, the more you could help. So that, mm-hmm. that neuro we had in teaching, working with stroke patients or traumatic brain injuries, um, really changed the way we perceive um, an ankle sprain right. or, you know, a knee sprain or even a knee surgery to some extent. Um, yeah, so what is physical therapy, Lee? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, to talk more about the, the subjects really quick. So outpatient orthopedics. You know, we're, like Eric said, we, we see kind of anybody. They can be coming from uh, their their doctor immediately, uh, their outpatient doctor. They can be coming from the, you know, w- without seeing a doctor, the direct access. Um, and they, they in our our profession, too, is the one thing that stuck in my head is I, I'll never forget. I sat down first time I met my dentist. Uh, super nice guy and very personable, has great bedside manner. And he shook my hand and he says, oh, you're a physical therapist. He's like, you know what? The difference between you and me is I see people before there are problems. He's like, you see people after there's a problem. Yeah, right, right. And, I, and I, I really love the guy. And I was like, eh, that's not really true, but or it shouldn't be like that because right. you know, what we do. But, of course, uh, that is the majority. So, like, usually we'll see people after an injury or they're recovering from injury. But the way we're the the information that we're equipped with and what we could do with patients is goes far beyond that, especially in the outpatient orthopedic field. We can, like Eric was saying, optimize uh, people's movement for sports, um, you know, help them begin the strengthening program safely, and then 
you know, communicate with a trainer or if we have that versatility, we can train them ourselves. Um, and that's super important because right now, if you go to the traditional insurance route, you might not be able to get physical therapy because you're quote too healthy to, to be there. I don't think that's, I don't think that's what we can do. Like that's not the best that we could do. Right. I think um, the term used is uh, medical necessity. Mm, So, um, you know, if there's not a medical necessity, often insurance won't uh, pay. And, you know, obviously medical necessity is subject to interpretation. Mm -hmm. Um, But in our case, you know, as Lee said, you know, it's very costly to the system to wait till it is a medical necessity. Right. And there's an extreme amount of research to show the opposite, where it saves a gigantic amount of money for our system. If they see someone, they're screened, they're educated about things that they could do for themselves, and they don't have to go see their doctor, maybe. They don't have to go continue physical therapy. They don't have to do the other things. They can actually just continue on doing their activities, things like that. Uh, there's actually a physical therapist, uh, Shirley Sarman. Hmm. She's well-known in the physical therapy world. Other therapists who, who aren't familiar with her, I highly recommend. She's got two major books out. She does a tremendous amount of research um, about posture and, and um, basically thoracic, lumbar spine. She's kind of, she's got the Sarman series, which she's most known for in, in clinics, which is like a core stability series. Anyways, she was trying to push for legislation that would allow people to be covered uh, either biannually or annually to go see a physical therapist without having an issue. And it, it of course, failed um, just because there's, I think, just too much money in having, you know, the other, what was going on now. There's, you know, more pharmaceutical care. There's more, um, you know, sicker and quicker care. You know, they, they go get imaging first and then go see the physical therapy that, that gives more money to um, people who don't really need it. Um, but yeah, so like this is, <laughs> that was good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. But, uh, I mean, that, that it's just the truth. They set up the system in such a way, or they're keeping the system in such a way that is allowing this to, uh, to occur. And there, there's definitely pushes from, uh, I think our industry to e- either reduce it or allow, some education about it and i think that's super important because if if it doesn't happen it's just going to keep getting worse and we read about every day in the paper like how much money or how much debt we're in and how much money we're spending on health care and all these other things and it's pretty incredible what what can be done to reduce that but it's not being done Uh, obviously there's lots of things in the way but i think where it can start is with the patient getting educated about these things uh, simple things, you know. Very simple things. I was going to mm-hmm. say that you know a lot of the a lot of the changes that you're discussing will start with very basic education, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, most of uh, most of this care doesn't have to get to that point with some simple movement, yeah, <laughs> with some simple self care, with. Uh, with, with well, we, we're saying it's simple. With simple, because we're involved, I guess, within it. But the truth is, it might be a, a challenging question for some to look at themselves and say, "Hey, how can I help myself?" <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, and, and I do think it's tough because let's say a patient goes to the doctor. In general, as we get older, we we get a little less resilient and things start to become a little bit more uncomfortable and stiff and things like that. 
and let's say our blood work doesn't come back great, and the the doctor's like, oh, you got a little high cholesterol, your blood pressure's up a little bit, your your pulse is up, and you have some arthritis in your joints. I think it'd be good if you if you start an exercise program. You know, you you start working out, and so inevitably they go and work out, or let's say they don't know anything about working out, and they they might hurt themselves as they go work out, and then. Um, they have to go see their doctor because they hurt themselves and or they go see a physical therapist and then they start those cycle all over again. So, you know, depending on what their information that they're given, um, they can be stuck in this cycle versus let's say they get all this information and, and they're given like a, a good program or the access to have someone guide them through it. You know, that initial stage so they don't get hurt. So the initial stage so they they can learn what they could do for themselves. And there's there's uh, there's gyms doing that right now. They're they're kind of um, taking that approach where, well, we're not going to come and passively work you out. We're, you're going to come and we're going to teach you how to program the strength training. We're going to teach you how to move. We're going to kind of jumpstart this ability to do it. And, and then you can kind of take it from there. Right. Well, giving you the tools. And I think um – Often when you're in that position, it may be overwhelming to get started. I mean, I know mm-hmm. uh, many individuals close to my heart that um, mm-hmm. just uh, have barriers to beginning this process. And uh, this is where our education comes in and, and finding people's motivation and understanding how a person learns. And uh, as many of our mentors have taught us to kind of tease out what motivates an individual and starting light, and really right. starting, you know, and again, educating them with the fundamentals mm-hmm. that, you know, that unfortunately the fundamentals are not what we read in the textbooks, you know, mm-hmm. or what we studied in the fitness industry of, you know, get your three days, five days of cardio, mm-hmm. you know, the elliptical. Have, yeah, the, anyway. uh, have 60 grams of carbs every day. Uh, 30 <laughs> grams of protein after your workout, preferably whey. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, so... Um, you know, there's um, a lot of there has been a lot of there's a lot of information out there, mm-hmm. and hopefully, one of the goals of our podcast here is to sift through that information, right. um, and to to help you know whether it's clinicians or patients, just kind of sift through that information and realize that the answers are out there, and the answers aren't the same for each individual. Right. Um, you know what motivates one or what one is going to stick to uh, in terms of a movement practice varies but uh going back to physical physical therapy physical therapy in general mm-hmm. a physical therapy physical therapist should be able to provide these basic ideas right yeah so that's super important and um like i think depending on where you go the experience should be you know uh there's a lot of great physical therapists who talk about this they they believe a successful outcome is giving the patient uh, tools that they know what to do about their current situation. And I'm not going to even say injury or pain because that's a whole different story. Um, but they, they, they are given some tools to help uh, their situation and improve or at least mitigate it from happening again or reduce it from happening again and uh, kind of educate them also why did this occur? Like how, how did they get there? How did they get to that point? Mm. Uh, versus these, quote, low-value passive treatments like ultrasound, whirlpool, e-stim, heat, ice. Not to say that all of those things can't be used, but practices 
uh, that we've experienced, they use those 100% of the time for the majority of the time, and they work uh, maybe, I don't, I don't even know a percentage on it. It's very a low amount of times that they actually do something because fortunately there's been enough uh, scientific evidence to show that a lot of them, like ultrasound, um, doesn't have a true therapeutic effect. Right. Uh, and they compare that to placebo. They compare that to not doing anything at all. Um, and, of course, there's, there's also research to show that manual therapy is the same, but there's not enough evidence to show that there is no effect. As, right. um, anyways, and we're going to be talking about that, too, in terms of what's out there in the, in the research field. Um, but, yeah, these simple things should be – the physical therapist should be able to guide you on at least the initial steps and give you the appropriate amount of information that's easily digestible. One of the big mistakes that I see some physical therapists have this habit of is they just overload the patient with very technical information, and it does nothing except for trying to impress the patient that they know. Don't confuse them. Um, yeah. One of our key top well, key topics in school, I think, was um, we had an education class that was amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would talk about the use of language and the use of um, scaling back on clinical terms when describing it to a patient. I mean, obviously, you don't want to misinform the patient, Mm -hmm. but use a language in which the patient's going to understand and keeping it simple. Um, So as a physical therapist, you know, one should know how to educate a patient in a, in a non-threatening manner. <laughs> oh, not in, you know, not in a way that, hey, you know, I'll just give you an example. Uh, yeah, you, you, you tore your rotator cuff. Uh, you, you won't be able to do, you're not going to get back to your sport for another six months. Um, I don't know. You're talking about nocebos? Nocebos. Which is the negative uh, implication, like saying, you know, degeneration, tears, stuff like that. Yeah, nocebos. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's, a common, that's a common theme in our practice. Um, yeah. And um, it's one that hopefully we'll be able to chip at, you know, because um, hopefully in, in future podcasts or even in this one, we could give you guys some references to what we're, we're discussing. Uh, but the use of language has been extensively studied mm-hmm. um, in terms of what the no- nocebo effect. Um, so getting back to what is physical therapy, <laughs> physical therapy is education. It is. And then, and then that was one thing, too, is uh, did, like Eric said, is this, being, this, this information is being studied right now in the moment. And there's not a lot of, uh, at least in the United States, there's not a lot of coverage on it. So if you go to places like Australia, New Zealand, anywhere in Europe, there's going to be a lot more information regarding this because, well, number one, their insurance system is different. Um, you know, they're, they're able to uh, see patients for longer. Typically, you have more likelihood of having high-value care. Of course, I don't live there. I don't know exactly if that's the case, but right. from what I read, that, that seems to be the case. And the other the therapist that I've met who've been tra- trained in Brazil and New, uh, New Zealand and Australia are very highly educated and they're treated a little differently. It sounds like they're treated more like physicians uh, as they uh, d- compared to here. So yeah, education is super important. And uh, what Eric was saying about language is that even some negative connotation about 
your current injury, let's say, you know, you, that you get an MRI and you start to read words like degeneration or degenerative disc disease or herniated disc or nerve impingement, protrusions, whatever it is, that could elicit a pain response in your body unknowingly. It's not this idea where your head is saying, you know, like you, you get the psychological, hey, you have, uh, you know, this this injury that's showing up an MRI and then it, it just magically appears like you have more pain. No, it's more like it's a normal uh, biochemical response that when you hear these words, we know what these words mean in terms of our conscious and subconscious brain. So we, our brain will output that sensation. Now, the opposite is true where we tell you that, which is the truth, your spine is very strong. You definitely have some uh, normal wear going on. Um, and this can be mitigated and or resolved if you do these movements or do these things for yourself over the next several months. And you don't need me every day to, to do this with you. You, I'll give you the appropriate tools to do it and you can start on your program and start to learn about your body and things like that. Right. And going back to the specifics of um, reading about these structural abnormalities or these structural perceived by some as damage, right? Mm. Um, you know, there's plenty of studies that have indicated that structure, um, structural damage does not necessarily equal pain mm-hmm. and vice versa. So an example of that is a an elite Olympian runner that has quote, degenerative disc disease and has trophies, um, yet um, a, a 25-year-old with a perfect MRI that's bed-bound because of back pain. Mm-hmm. And their their back looks clean on an MRI, but, you know, they're in severe back pain. So it doesn't, you know, structure doesn't e- equal damage. Excuse me. In, mo- in many cases, structural damage doesn't equal pain. Now, that that's not all the time because there's definitely some structural damage, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that, right, mm-hmm. that will cause plenty of pain. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, that's, um, that's, a, that's a fact that's being studied. It's studied and it's continually being studied. Exactly. And, it, and it, I think there's a reason why it's not uh, being promoted very aggressively in, let's say, our, our mainstream media because it's going to deter you from doing other things like getting some medication or uh, getting imaging and things like that. So, but it's definitely getting more attention, which is great. Um, and there's some, uh, like we were saying before, there's incredible physical therapists who are bringing light to this. Uh, there's a guy, I think he's doing one of the most comprehensive jobs of uh, presenting this research. His name is Peter O'Sullivan. And we've actually, Eric and I have saw him uh, speak before he became very big in the United States, uh, because now he's he's very well known, uh, we went and saw him uh, treat almost like a half a dozen patients, yeah, it was and it was unbelievable. I mean, it it was more of um, you see these patients that have failed all measures of conservative and non-conservative treatment. We're talking about really aggressive spinal surgeries uh, for years, you know, fourteen years, whatever it may be, and he can help them. Uh, sift through all that information, give them the tools that they would need to be- begin this journey of uh, m- you know, getting out of pain without medication, and uh, it was it was successful for what we saw. Maybe with the exception of one or two patients, um, it was it was very successful. Um, it was definitely a 
it, Lee and I were exposed to this kind of train of uh, this school of thought, but it was pretty impressive to see it in action and reinforced. And the mm-hmm. way he uh, describes it in, in plain English to us, um, it was something that we were able to implement a day or two later in the clinic, which was pretty great because it had nothing to do with um, any kind of manual intervention. It had more to do with challenging challenging patients' perception of what's actually going on, what what can be done, mm. um, what they're capable of, and, and really highlighting some of the limitations that patients were putting on themselves due to um, the information they were given or... The misinformation. <laughs> the misinformation <laughs> that they were given. Uh, it, it was pretty, it was a pretty cool, th- and I would love to see, hopefully he presents here in New York sometime soon. Oh my God, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, at the, this, uh, as an example, he studies mostly, or he, he gives a lot of information on um, injuries to the spine or, or, or pain in the low back. Uh, he believes that is the... Uh, most misinformed uh, area of the body in terms of injury, meaning, let's say, um, you go to the doctor, you have back pain, um, and you get a, an MRI, and it shows what would be perceived as an abnormal uh, result, and then you get an intervention. Typically, it could be surgery or an injection or something other than PT or movement, and then that pain continues. So in the quote, fixing of that area, you still have pain. So then that forces us to investigate what is causing the pain to begin with. And so he's done so much research in the show that there's a a larger component where if you combine uh, the biological, uh, the psychological, and the social aspect of that patient or the biopsychosocial, you get this new paradigm. Um, And it's along with all these other neurophysiologists uh, neuroscientists who talk about all these plastic changes that go on in the brain when we're in pain and all these other things. So it's really fascinating. We'll dive into it in future podcasts about pain and, and uh, anatomy and phys and everything. And, and going back to the physical therapy, it's it's changed quite a bit, yes, right? From yeah. uh, going back to what you mentioned after World War II and kind of helping people deal with um, the many injuries that came with war. Um, both physical and psychological. Uh, you know, the physical therapists, even at that stage of the game, they were probably affecting the brain in ways that uh, we, you know, weren't understood at the time. Yeah. Um, but obviously something was going on to have the, the industry grow. Um, and there was a level of education. So now fast forward 2018, we have pain science. Um, we have neuroscience layered into this, you know, physical therapy, challenging. There's a lot of challenges to preconceived notions that we were taught in school. I mean, we were taught, you know, we had a whole class on modalities and we had a great teacher. (laughs) That was a funny guy. (laughs) Big beefy red. Yep. Uh, (laughs) That was um, really, you know, really informative and we got to use these machines and, but it's different. Things have changed now. And, and I know a lot of new grads that are equipped with this information. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty cool to see them not um, falling into the system, you know, falling prey to being a robot or just being, uh, yeah. you know. 
and mi- it's, mindlessly it's, treating. It's fascinating because that's right. When we got out of school, we were really drilled the bio um, Patho- bi- pathoanatomical. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, the pathoanatomical model, and that leads to certain injuries. You know, like say posture. My God, posture training. That's a whole other thing we could talk about. Um, and you know, why does pure why does poor posture lead to neck pain or back pain? And and we find out after we get out of school that this is not the case. In my own experience with it, and I think actually for you too, both Eric and I were working at the same place soon after school, and we met an individual who was a physical therapist who was dumbfounded with this uh, one website that was just a, like a, a talk forum. It was called Soma Simple. Oh. And so this individual, his name is Patrick Lyons, incredible physical therapist. He's been out of school. He was trained in Australia, um, and he was been out of school for about five years. And he would tell us that he was primarily like a very well-proficient and versed manual manipulative therapist. So meaning that... Yes, he was. <laughs> and he was. He, he was fantastic. And, and the, if, if you don't know what a manipulative therapist is or a manual therapist, he was able to mobilize joints at a higher level being able to, you know, what the whole theory is, is structurally align them better and m- allow them to move better, things like that. Anyway, so he started reading reading all these uh, uh, blogs or uh, conversations that they were having on this forum, and he would challenge them. And they were primarily uh, 100% this uh, pain science and neuroscientists. Right. And so um, he would challenge them on how the pathoanatomical model uh, would work and why it would cause pain, why it would cause injury, and they would just cite research article after research article and give him logical explanations of why. And sure enough, after a couple months, he was drawn in, and he became a huge contributor there. And then I remember the first day he introduced me to it and showed it to me, and I had the same reaction any any other physical therapy right out of school did. And I was like, this is all nonsense. This is I can't imagine this happening because you, you can't really conce- conceptualize it. And I always look back at that experience and how long it took me to get to the point where I am now. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's that's 2012. So 2012, and and Patrick actually wrote a um, <laughs> we call it the Pain Manifesto. That's right. In which he called out every therapist. And there was quite a few. Yeah. Uh, each of us, he <laughs> called out each of each therapist uh, and asked, you know, do you think, you know, let's say, I don't know. Each therapist, let's say, had a different level of training. I One remember what he said to IPA. me. Yeah, <laughs> was it the? Stu- I don't remember what he said to me. I think I he- had I had just taken a course uh, from the Institute of Physical Art, oh, the IPA, IPA and yes. he said, and he sees, you know, we were all on the same thread. Right. He's like, Lee, how could you, um, how can you explain why the, uh, you know, I had just done a presentation on after taking that course, and it was a three day course, and I was really happy about it as a new grad. I was like, oh, this is going to really change, you know, my game, whatever. And I put a lot of work in his presentation, and he just totally, you know, smashed it down. He's like, how, do you, how can you say A, B, and C can uh, decrease pain and injury? And I was, I was one of the people who responded, and I tried to outline it in a very logical manner. And then he immediately came back, and he cited all these things and logistical reasons why that doesn't matter. And <laughs> so that was <laughs> – it was very challenging. And, again, it, it didn't resonate as it does now. And I guess looking back, I try to think about that when I talk to patients about this stuff because we have all this training and we have all these um, uh, medical knowledge and we have our own experiences. And, of course, we're all built to experiences, experience these things similarly, meaning like we have injuries, things like that. 
So it was hard for me to grasp. I can't imagine what it's like a, for a patient who's never even begun to learn about these things. And now they have to learn about everything. They have to learn about the pathway anatomical. They have to learn about uh, neuroscience. And then, you know, to, to compact that in, let's say, 20 minutes. Hmm. <laughs> it's, That's it's, right. It's a, it's a percentage of people who, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of PTs out there who are now building programs to, uh, or systems to do it. But I think we have to do a little bit more to to assist other physical therapists in this because some people will take it and run with it and not be able not to know what to do with it. Yeah, because um, um, it could definitely, you know, in the years of um, having this pain science and a neuroscience perspective on physical therapy, each of us deliver it to a patient in a very unique way. And I think finding your way is very important because, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, there are many times, and Lee could uh, hopefully relate to this, that you know I've tried to explain what we're discussing now to a patient while they're in pain, and I've, I've used the wrong words. I've elicited a, a defensive mechanism within the patient, mm -hmm. you know, where I say, hey, you know, it's great, you know, you have X, Y, and Z, but I'm not sure if that's the, the cause of what's going on here. And they're like, well, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. And we go back and forth, and it's like, well, you, are you telling me it's all in my head. It's in my head. And I was like, well, <laughs> kind of is. It's your brain. But, but um, yeah, it, it, it takes a little, it, you know, we're, we're, we're good. We're storytellers at the end of the day. We're, right. And um, exactly. <laughs> Bless you. Um, we, um, we're storytellers, you know, educators and storytellers. And I think the ability, physical therapy to some extent, is the ability to adapt your educational delivery Mm -hmm. um, based on the person in front of you. And it, it takes a while, but hopefully at some point we could um, give some some words of wisdom in terms of that delivery to a patient. Because it really, that's one of the things that we see, whether it's a new grad or someone that hasn't, or a therapist that's been practicing that hasn't been exposed to this, we've seen the shortcomings of um, of trying to deliver this message. Yeah. No, I could totally relate to that. I've had a number of times where, as again, I'm just learning this information and then improper delivery and, and definitely losing the patient. And again, as Eric said, we don't see people who are coming in like fresh and happy and ready to like, you know, take over the world. We're seeing people usually in a really bad state. You know, they're they're in pain. They might have been told that they're never going to be able to run again. They, they might have been told that their injury is really bad, things like that. So it, we, we do. A, there's a lot of things that we have to do at the exact same time in addition to giving them logical, pragmatic information, which is they're not always open to in the moment. Um, so that's, that's a tough challenge. But that kind of goes into where we think the future of all physical therapy is going is using this pain science, using this neuroscience, using this model, this biopsychosocial model, and applying it in a reasonable way to everybody. I mean, right now they're just looking at chronic pain um, and, and uh, you know, pain that's been going on beyond the normal tissue healing time. But I think everybody who is, is an athlete is going to go through periods of stages. Yeah, and, yeah. We'll go through stages. I mean, even a lot of the research is towards uh, chronic side of pain. But the truth is, is people go through the same stages at early at early stages, right. as, as exactly. Lee just mentioned. Um, uh, 
so back to what is physical therapy. Mm. It, it's really relative to who the physical therapist is right. uh, <laughs> at yeah. this stage in age. I mean, hopefully we have some kind of um, standard. I guess hopefully we're able to raise that standard uh, mm-hmm. industry-wide. Yeah. Um, but it really, really depends <laughs> where <laughs> your first experience lies. It does. Um and I, I had a very similar experience as Eric did for physical therapy in the past in terms of just the modalities, the passive modalities, and that's what I thought physical therapy was. Um, but it definitely is not. It's it's more about encountering a person who can give you good education and, and help you achieve your goals in, in an easy, progressive way. Yeah, and that being said, you know, there, there is um, physical therapy is about education, um, it's about assessing what, you know, what's meaningful to the per- why the person actually is in your office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, a combination of utilizing some manual tools that you might have in your um, tool belt, mm-hmm. uh, followed up with probably one of the more important things is what is this person doing when they're not with you? Because mm-hmm. the person's not seeing, this average person, let's say, sees a person sees a therapist anywhere from one to two times a week, um, maybe three if it's a post-surgical situation, but very seldomly does that occur right. or should occur. Mm-hmm. Um, but the person's alone for, you know, X amount of hours. So so it's a combination of education, assessment, um, some kind of intervention if necessary, some manual intervention if necessary, followed up with... Um, more education slash uh, some simple homework. And that that's just my perspective. I don't know if you want to build on that. Yeah, no, I, and I, I think it's also important the um, that assessment or the examination, for instance, are they, uh, do they need to be here um, in a sense that should they be going to see a doctor, uh, a physician, whatever it is, we screen the red flags um, and make sure we're, we're you know, not, prolonging something that's going on something more sinister as they would say yes, yes um anyway so yeah i would totally agree with that i feel like that that simple one two three approach be able to build success on that um and get someone started on a positive note a lot of people they get turned off when they go to physical therapy at least from what i see still unfortunately um with a lot of our experienced therapists is they get a lot of uh, I don't know how to put it, but like def- definitely the negative connotations like, oh, you got to be careful. Yeah, they, they don't, or the, you, you got, you tore your ACL, you tore your knee, you definitely did. You know, they, they don't even get to let them finish talking. They just interrupt them the whole time because, you know, they read a book about, uh, uh, you know, sort of interviewing skills or whatever. And so they'll set the table <laughs> up a certain way, all this stuff. Oh, I hate that. Um, <laughs> I mean, what's coming out now? And we talked about it already, but like the 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 importance of contextual factor contextual factors is super important. So, how does the, how does the patient feel about you as a person? How do they react to you? How do you treat them? How do you talk to them? What is the tone that you use with the patient? How do you like? What's the environment? Are they in a room? Are they out in the open? Is the place noisy? Um, is it clean? Is it dirty? Or right. That is, uh, is it- fortunately and unfortunately, that's what builds successful treatments. That's what affects right. the person's pain response. And it, it's common sense stuff. Like if you put anybody in a room that's like super loud and like, you know, there's a lot of people around you, there's a lot of distractions and someone's there 
saying rude things to you in a rude tone, you're not going to feel good. You know, you're going to feel you're going to feel a little irritable, actually. Um, yeah, and conversely, if you come in and there's a calmness about the room, yeah, the calmness about the therapist, there is a um, certain tone. Mm-hmm. Then you may have again. These are contextual factors, but um, they play a, a huge part into people's experience. Which, at the end of the day, that's what's occurring. So, right. when the, you know, the person's experiencing uh, an edu- whatever they want to educate. Yeah. <laughs> but um, oh, for sure, in that examination, there, there's or past the interview, I should say, you're going to uh, go through a full biomechanical assessment. So. Let's say, let's propose that the person has knee pain, they're a runner, they've seen you without uh, seeing the doctor first, then we're not going to just, just examine the knee. We're going to look at the hip and the ankle, see how the hip's moving, see how the ankle's moving. This, you know, as one of uh, our, our mentors have mentioned, the knee is a victim of the hip and ankle, which is totally true in a biomechanical sense. So if the hip isn't moving as well as it could, their hip is not as strong as it could be, then it could be contributing to forces that wouldn't normally be felt at the knee and the knee can't handle it. And the same thing can happen as well from the ankle up. Uh, Now, and also you can have knee pain from having a back injury. So if your back is injured and you're having some uh, nerve pain or a nerve impingement or something, that could radiate down to your leg to your knee and cause knee pain. And if you're unaware of those things, you can solely think you have knee pain or you have knee pain uh, knee injury so then we have to tease those things out make sure that's not happening so it's not as simple as a b and c so uh, i i it's a it's a little difficult when we're around like at least for me family and friends and uh across the dinner table be like i have plantar fasciitis what do i need to do for that mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well the phrase will inevitably be uh it depends right. it, it depends on many factors so let me look at your foot first, and then we can make a distinction where we're, where to go next. So this is all gearing back to our first podcast where this is our relationship building. We have to be able to find out the patient's entire background, how it happened, how they're handling stress, yada, 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 all these things. So important. So the assessment would be, um, as Lee said, let's using the knee as an example, mm-hmm. um, some kind of looking, watching the person walk. Possibly run, jump, um, then taking a look at maybe getting them on a table, maybe mm-hmm. not, uh, taking a look at the joint mobility. Right. So to define joint mobility, by the way, so there's uh, arthrokinematics and osteokinematics. So how well the bones actually move in the joint. So whenever we move our, our joints individually, the bones move a little bit. So that's called accessory motion, a.k.a. that's the pure definition of mobility. That's important to know. So, like, you can have a stiff mobility, you can have hypermobility, all these things. And so, we want to make sure we're getting that. That's, that's super important. Yeah. So, um, after this um, assessment, uh, one would come up with uh, problems. Uh, problems. <laughs> a problem list. That's what we were talking. Uh, where where the problems are? Well, I, I would think of them as um, non-optimal function. Non-optimal range of motion, non-optimal stability, non-optimal strength, non-optimal position. Right. And a side note, we are all non-optimal. Right, right, (laughs) Everybody, right, right, right. right, right. (laughs) It's got two legs, or it's it's walking on this earth, is able to get around this earth. We're all non-optimal in the sense of 
you know, symmetry and strength and stiffness. Right. We're always going to find something. We're always going to find problems. Right. So at, after finding this um, problem or non-optimal function, <laughs> um, a game plan is created, which yeah. uh, which is expressed to the patient. And that game plan, at least in Lee and I's um, background and training, would be some kind of intervention, uh, whether it's a manual intervention or it's just uh, an educational move, uh, movement. How would you say a movement? An exercise. Yeah, or an exercise or, or, or some kind of um, awareness building on a, a movement or a lack of movement for the patient. Right. Um, yeah, if they have knee pain and they're doing something specifically – Again, this is not a strict uh, A is causing pain in, in the knee. It's more like uh, to decrease forces at the knee to help things kind of speed along. We can advise you to, let's say, try this running pattern while you're running. Uh, and th- Again, that, that, that takes a lot of education in the sense that now we have to teach them how to uh, adjust their, their movements or ad- adjust their running gait. And that could be through different drills that they could do or an exercise or a stretch right. or whatever. So, so um, that that skill could be running. That skill mm-hmm. could be lifting your arm. That mm-hmm. skill could be even turning your head to the side. Mm-hmm. All, of, all of these um, would be um, tools that we would empower the patient with. So you have an asset. Well, we get an interview from a patient. We interview the patient. We get a, a gist of what's going on. We get an idea of what what the person wants from this experience. A key question is, you know, what are some of your, what's your expectation or goal of physical therapy? Uh, clearly, the patient should be able to tell you what they want mm-hmm. uh, or what they have an idea of what they think they want. Mm-hmm. Um, an assessment, a plan, some kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. And the education, I believe, is kind of um, the education of, of the patient, as we mentioned um, previously, mm-hmm. um, is critical and should be, in my opinion, la- uh, interlaced throughout the session with the patient, right. whether that's educating them on what their imaging results may, may have come back with, educating them on why this, may, this injury may have occurred, because we really, you know, we really don't. In some cases, we really don't know. Yeah, uh, the the direct. But and and being honest with them, uh, would you elaborate on? Yeah, on this, so this it, session. It's interesting too. There's uh, I'm a big uh, social media person right now with physical therapy. I follow a lot of leaders in our field, and uh, there's apparently something called the Kira O'Sullivan test. Hmm. And I don't know who Kira O'Sullivan is, but I think they're related to Peter O'Sullivan. If not, they're their own. Physical therapist. Anyways, it's very interesting. So it's, can the patient go home and explain to a family member without any cues what the physical therapist said, what was, how they can help themselves? And I think that's a huge component. That's, that's a great yeah, test. Yeah, and, and is that, that's an, a successful treatment. So, and Peter O'Sullivan says this as well. Um, if the patient fully knows what to do over the course of whatever it may be until they see you again or maybe indefinitely to help themselves – and they understand what caused or what is causing certain things to happen, and that's a s- successful treatment. Not because you build five units and you can, you know, get them. You got you got sixty minutes of pure physical therapy build in there, and then it's successful treatment. No, or you you decrease their pain from that terrible uh, VAS scale from seven out of ten to four out of ten. I mean, that to me, that's still not 
a successful treatment is they know what's going on. They understand it. They are well-educated. They now can take those tools that you have offered them, and they can apply it. And that's that's the key. Yeah, that, that is the key. So going back to the question of what is physical therapy, Lee and mm. I just described what an assessment um, would be and, and what a successful treatment. And each treatment there is there should be some level of, of assessment it's kind of what we call a test retest so mm, you know you would important. you would assess let's say this going back to the guy man or the woman with uh, the knee pain right. um, a person we're looking at them walk we're looking at them run we're watch, watching them jump and then the second treatment we'll do this very similar approach watching uh, a movement pattern we would uh, apply or apply some kind of uh, treatment, whether that's manual or just exercise or a combination of both, mm-hmm. and then take a look and see if that pattern is is different. Whether it's um, an ad- objective difference or in in many cases it could be a subjective thing for the patient. For the patient, mm-hmm. uh, should not be subjective for the clinician, but um, often it is. Uh, many times I see so many times. Oh, that feels better, right? That, feels, <laughs> that looks like it feels better. No, man, you don't. You're not. You're not that person. Like you don't. It's uh, a good one. I, it drives me nuts. It's good, it, right? It, it's like this Jedi mind trick where they like that. That feels better now. Now you feel better. No, mm. why don't you let them tell you how they feel? Right. Like this. Right. Take take two seconds. Uh, a little trick that I learned from a uh, a manager of mine who I I still use to this day. And it's nothing bad. It's nothing manipulative. But it, it does force, as a human being, it forces you to object to it, basically. Does that feel, I say to them, does that feel worse? So they, you know, any human being, it's not just patients, but any human being, my, myself included, I would be forced to say no to that if it's not worse. Then I'd, I would really evaluate what's going on. That's a good one. i got to use that. Yeah. And, and it's, it, you, you want to, it's being aware of, Putting yourself in that situation, sometimes it is a human thing to do to give satisfaction to that clinician, meaning yes, like yes. they just treated you, that. they worked hard, maybe you built a good relationship, the patient's done, and then you go walk or you do that post-test, and you're like, uh, I'm not going to tell this person I feel worse. That would make them feel bad. Like, I, I want to be nice to them. So they'll be like, yeah. oh, yeah, it feels okay. But you really <laughs> want to get an honest answer, and it's hard. And I, I think it's such a human thing to do. People get so caught up on this manipulation but it's not it's just a human response we're right. all the same right. um so that's important to realize so it, it to get that objective and or the patient's subjective response and that way you can record it then you can plan that treatments other treatments after that um so that's that's super important so now going forward what we think is kind of this this meshing of the fields where our experiences strength conditioning uh and personal trainers go into physical therapy, there's so much emphasis on movement and strength training and research and how important it is for health. So at this point, I think every physical therapist, and I, I think Eric feels the same way, it's it's super important to get involved in that. A physical therapist who don't get themselves involved in some sort of organized resistance training, strength training, and learning about it themselves, doing it themselves, going to seminars, implementing it with patients, I think they're doing themselves and their patients a disservice because there's so much evidence to show now that strength training and strength conditioning, it changes everything in the body in terms of health Brain. and wellness. Um, to um, to elaborate a little more on that, mm-hmm. um, 
how you know especially in our outpatient world um mm. you know there's so many trends and so many trends or uh, trends in fitness um whether it's you know spinning pilates yoga crossfit um some of these things have been around for a while some of mm. these things will be around for a while but as a physical therapist i think it's critical to at least dabble in some of these movement practices um how could you know i i know myself and lee you know pride ourselves with um with trying new things with seeing that what's out there on the industry mm-hmm. and again it gives us a better rapport with our patients saying oh yeah i know it you know we know the the jargon of these movement practices within mm-hmm. fitness um but it's critical it's critical to understanding the patient the patient's injury and most importantly how you can relate how can you incentivize uh your treatment to this patient letting them know hey i know what you're going through i have an idea of what you're going through mm-hmm. i don't know what you're going through but um <laughs> but uh how how are we going to better this and again i think yeah. it, it's um it's wild to lee and i that there are certain physical therapists that that don't um that don't delve into anything Anything. Yeah. I, I get so frustrated on it because the benefits that I have reaped from it have been uh, immense. It, and and it's, just, it's getting better every day because, you know, Eric and I take jujitsu, such a complex, complex martial art. Hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Same. <laughs> and and it, I've been in martial arts since I was six. And I, I would uh, hands down say this is the most complicated martial art I've ever taken. And it's given me the most in a sense of mind-body experience, problem-solving skills, uh, just learning about my body and being put in the most uncomfortable positions ever, and also learning from that. And I can apply. I can absolutely hand that off to patients because not only I don't have to treat a jujitsu player to reap those benefits. I can treat anybody and give them that information in terms of what I learned from that. I I usually use the analogy because it's usually tough to try to think of a way to explain this to somebody. But very quickly, I say. Uh, a physical therapist who does not engage in any sort of strength training, movement-based approaches, and doesn't even begin to learn. It's like seeing a dentist who has bad teeth or <laughs> yellow teeth. And it's true. Like, you can't, really, you can't really push around that analogy. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, well, I don't want to go do strength training because it doesn't really interest me. It's not part of my goals. Well, it doesn't have to be part of your goals, but you are a health practitioner. No, physical, and what physical. is overwhelmingly true these days in the research is that strength training is beneficial and you should be passing on that information to your patients, all of your patients, more so your older patients than your young patients, even your youth patients, all these patients. So I don't see the excuse. I don't see how that works. I read this entire blog by this really well-known physical therapist who was so adamant by saying, I don't like to exercise. I don't exercise. And he was so happy to say, like, you know, one day I'll go lift. Uh, I'm not going to say that. uh, He was like, one day I'll go lift 300 pounds. And I'll feel fine on the deadlift, and then you know next week I might go for a run. And like, that's fine. That's great. You're young enough to do that. Right. You're right. young enough to do that, but you're not going to be able to do that type of exercise or that type of method for your entire life. So when you wake up and you're 60 or you're 70, you're not going to be able to do that. Right. So you 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 have to do this now in terms of building these skills and pass that on to the patients. Be- help them build those skills that are going to give them lifelong mobility give them lifelong function, able to be a grandfather, able to be uh, a, a father running around with their kids or a mother or a grandmother, you know, give them those abilities. Yeah, I think um, what I, you know, over the years, um, 
the importance of movement has been highlighted so many ways. You know, I, I um, myself, I didn't have many, you know, people in my family, I would say, are not into fitness at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of the, the, the pioneer in my own family. And I've always, you know, since some, since I was like 17, always try to pass it along. But one thing I've realized over the course of the la- over 20 years is that there's different movement practices for different people. I mean, what Lee and I, a couple of hours ago, were doing with jujitsu <laughs> is definitely not for everyone. It's <laughs> <laughs> definitely not for everybody, right? But um, maybe, maybe dancing is your thing. Maybe um, swimming is your thing. Maybe running is your thing. Maybe playing the drums is your thing. I, I don't know, but a movement practice is, is critical, one which you challenge yourself. Right. And I think another thing that Lee kind of touched upon with jujitsu is um, skill acquisition. I oh, think yeah. is critical, whether you're six or you're ninety-six. Um, you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of high performers um, pride themselves with always getting into different, learning different skills. Um, and uh, I definitely thank Lee for getting me involved in jujitsu because I, I you know I went to the class and I forget that first class I saw you saw, I saw you and I, I was watching Lee in class and I'm like holy this is a whole different world and and you know yeah. it's it's all it's it's it, I just remember the smell walking in I'm like damn this is a this is not equal it's, it's not equinox <laughs> you know but um I but I I I pride um the moves that I made with um leaving a, a stable corporate position uh, with a salary and vacation and a lot of little trinkets that would be that are beneficial. Um, I pride me leaving that all with because of jujitsu and, and because of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. Um, and that's that's a skill in itself. It is. And that, that where you're talking about that skill acquisition and whatever it is. And again, like Eric said, it could be whatever you want it to be as long as you're doing it in some sort of progressed fashion. So I think one of the biggest mistakes people make were the weekend warriors. Yes, and yes, yes. I understand that everyone has limited time and it's all that they can only work out fine on the weekends. That's fine. At least approach it in a way that you can um, learn in a progressed fashion that will give you the tools for anything else you need to do, help you understand your body. And that's why I think physical therapists need to heavily engage in other things where that they have to they have to be put in those uncomfortable positions, so they're forced to learn. Like, all right, well, my body can't handle that, so I need to be able to do this in the sense that I'm going to regress. Scale back. Scale back, build back up, improve this range of motion, improve this strength, and then I'll get back to what I want to do. So that learning experience, that needs to be continuous, continuous, continuous. I don't see any other way around it, and I, I just I get a little taken back by people in our field that, continuing to say that they don't need to do this well i think you've been afforded certain luxuries physically that have given you that opportunity to not get injured to not get set back neither of us have been afforded those luxuries we've actually had a numerous amount of injuries but also we keep engaging yeah we keep Keep moving moving. you know Um, it's 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 something that it's a huge learning experience and i think that gives gives wisdom in the sense that it's going to help patients it's 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 for us, but it's also for helping patients. Right. I mean, one thing that uh, Lee's uh, sister, Lee's sister, mm. had a, a kettlebell course that she did um, over at the clinic. That did you we say kettlebell? Treat. Yes, kettlebell. Did I say kettlebell? You said a kettlebell. 
Kettlebell? Oh my god. No, no, kettlebell. Kettle. No kettlebell. <laughs> a kettlebell. Did I say kettlebell? I don't know. We gotta slip. Kettlebells are a whole different thing. <laughs> we um we we created kettlebells. We <laughs> have <laughs> <laughs> So Lee's sister gave a kettlebell certificate um course mm. to um two physical therapists. And one of the things that stuck with me is whatever movement practice you're involved in, um, is this sustainable? Is yeah. this something I could do across the spectrum? And and that's something that everybody that's listening to this podcast, physical therapists, trainers, or patients, or anybody interested, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, there's a big push right now on high intensity training, mm-hmm. uh, and that that varies. That's a whole other podcast, but um, you know, these in, intense workouts, and and I could Lee and I, you could probably do. 15 minutes of jumping jacks, that'll probably be intense. Yeah. Right? So a mouse on a wheel will get you a little bit more. <laughs> right. But is this sustainable is right. the question. And, and Lee's uh, sister, that's something that I always, um, I actually revert back to my Stuck patients. Yeah. And I tell patients this. They're like, well, I've been working out six days a week. I'm running 50 miles. I'm, and I, I said, that's great. Mm. But you got to ask yourself, is this sustainable? And, and it's, it's a reflection point for a lot of patients, or at least those that are receptive to that mm-hmm. um is it sustainable and mm-hmm. if it's not sustainable what do you what's the result right. i think with that we're gonna uh we're gonna wrap it up uh we will dive more into this and and how the uh strength conditioning field and the leaders of the strength conditioning field are merging into pt and vice versa so uh interesting stuff thanks for listening all right sign up Thank you for listening to A Few Good Physios. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Follow us each week while we interview guests and have clinical commentary.